All right, well, it's great to have you here with us today, especially if you're visiting. I trust that you've already sensed God's presence amongst us. Our goal really at Fellowship is to lift Christ high, uh, to declare His glory, His goodness, His greatness. And I trust you've seen that already today and enjoyed participating with us in that. Uh, my name is Chris. For those of you who are joining us who are, are visiting with us, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, like you heard earlier, unfortunately, our, our senior pastor is not able to be with us today, but we thought it was important that he was able to catch his breath and rest and then come back uh, ready to move in somewhere. So thank you for your patience with him not being here. I know he really wants to be, but I'm grateful that he took our advice and uh, hopefully we'll come back all the more rested for it. If you would turn in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't have a, a Bible, we do have pew Bibles. I believe it's page 961, those blue pew, pew Bibles. You are welcome to turn there and uh, you can follow along with us in the text. And in fact, if you don't have a Bible in a modern translation, we would love for you to take that and make it your own. That's why we buy those, so that if you don't have one, you can take one home and uh, we can replenish them uh, for the next person who comes. 1 Corinthians 15 is the text we'll be looking at today, this great Easter text, this text that reminds us of the importance of the gospel and especially of the resurrection. I trust you found 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just read now the first, um, the first 11 verses as we get started. Paul writes this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared more to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this text today. Lord God, as we come to you this morning, we have one desire, and that is to proclaim your goodness and your greatness. There is no other event in history, no other act in history that does a better job of both declaring your goodness and greatness than the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and today as we think especially about his resurrection. This resurrection power is still at work today. I pray for all of us here today that we would then submit to your words here. Help us to carefully examine what you've written, and so live our lives by it. In Christ's name, amen. There's a great question on the mouths of everyone, whether it's spoken or not, that are interested in religious things. I would assume that most of us who are here today have some interest in religious things. The question is simply this, what does God want? Or what do I have to do to be made right with God? And there are answers the world over, are there not? There have been whole organizations and religions built on that exact question. What does God want? Generally speaking, most of our modern world today, most of our world today, answers that question with one of two answers. First, you can't. 
That's an answer that people give, isn't it? You can't know. So maybe guess or do your best or what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, but nobody really knows. And that is a common question, uh, answer to that question. There's another probably even more popular question, uh, answer to that question, that is repeated by the lips of most religious people and most just generally good people. That answer is this. Well, you try to live in a certain way, you perform certain ceremonies, you try to be a good person, and in the end, you basically see if you've done enough. Wouldn't you agree that those are common answers to that question? How can you be made right with God? Either you can't, so do your best and guess, or you try to be a good person and earn your way there. And really, those are the two major answers to that question today. Depending on how you answer that question has everything to do with your relationship with God, doesn't it? Today's text is, in a sense, the way the Apostle Paul, what he's doing is summarizing all the teaching, not only of himself and of Christ, but of the apostles, into one short statement on, what, on an answer to that question. How can you be right with God? Now, I'm going to assume that if you're a religious person, that probably out of those two, you're more likely to think of the second. You try to be a good person, you do certain ceremonies, you obey certain rules, and in the end, if you've done it all well, then God accepts you. The problem with that is it turns God into kind of a manipulative person who you have to check all the right things, say it all the right way, do enough, and at that point, every second, he's, he's evaluating you. But that's not actually the picture we get in the Bible. That picture is much more like the secular gods of old. It's actually a, a famous story. I think it shows exactly what this looks like in real life. It's of a man named Croesus. In fact, maybe you've heard the phrase rich as Croesus, and that's because this man was the king of the Lydians and was known for his wealth. They were the first likely to mint gold coins. And it was said that the sands of his area were, had flowed with the, the, the gold that came off King Midas's touch, the mythical King Midas. This man had heard for some decades now that there was a rising in the east, the Persian army had been slowly gaining ground, and he was going to go fight this Persian army. There was a final river he had to cross, and just before he did so, he, he took a couple of actions to make sure that he would be all right. The first thing he did was he made some alliances with a bunch of people. The Spartans was one of those groups. But the second thing he did was very much like the second answer to our question. He went to the gods of his day. In fact, he went to the oracle at Delphi. And he made certain ceremonies, and he did certain acts, all in a way to appease this God, and then asked, what should I do? And he got back a kind of mythical, uh, mythically known answer. The oracle simply said, if Croesus goes to war, he will destroy a great kingdom. What was he to do with that? Well, he decided the great kingdom was the Persians, and so he crossed the river what we find out soon, according to history, is that he destroyed his own great kingdom. Long story made short, even the king who, de who defeated him, King Cyrus, said, that's not fair of the gods. How could the gods treat you like that? And he commanded this defeated king to go back to the oracle at Delphi. And when he did that, the oracle simply said, you didn't quite do it all the right way. You should have asked this question next. You should have given this ceremony next. And isn't that how lots of people view God? Maybe you're here today and you're here because you want to do the right thing or you want to be with family. And, but as you think about God, he's much more like that, isn't he? 
You say, God's kind of like this person. If you don't just quite appease the right way, you're on the outs. How are we supposed to know what God wants? And so the answer to both of the, to that question, either way, ends up with a God who is either fickle or leaves you in an uncertain place. But that's not the answer that the Bible gives us. Paul is going to instead share with us that the gospel of Jesus Christ leaves us not in a place of uncertainty, nor in a place of having to earn favor with God, but in a place of certain confidence that we're right with God. Does that describe your relationship with God today? If I were to ask you that question, how do you know you're right with God? Could you answer with confidence? This text, in many ways, is an answer to that question. This is why Paul writes in verse 3, I delivered to you of first importance. This is the thing that Paul says is at the very center of the Christian faith. This is the good news, the gospel. That word gospel simply means good news or good announcement. It means the good proclamation. I would like to explore this text with three questions. Number one, who is the good news about? Now, that's a much more important question than it might seem like on the forefront. Number two, what are the events about the gospel? What do the events of the gospel include? In other words, we're talking about a person. That's what the gospel is about. What events that happen to those person, that person matter? And then finally, and lastly, what do those events mean for you and me? So let's explore that in those three questions. But first of all, who is the gospel about? Well, if you look down with me at verse 3, he simply says this, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. That, and can you say that next word with me? What's that next word? Christ. It's Christ. That's what the gospel is about. In fact, if you were to look at the rest of these verses here, Christ died for our sins. Verse 4, he was buried. Verse 4 continues, he was raised in accordance with the, third, uh, with the scriptures. Verse 5, he appeared to Cephas. All of this, Paul summarizes in the very first verse, chapter 15, verse 1, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. The gospel, then, is about a person. Now, that's crucial because this person, the Christ, it tells us that this gospel is not primarily about us, although it does affect us, and we'll talk about that briefly. This word Christ is not a name for Jesus, as in like his last name, Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard of that. No, it's a title for him, and it means the anointed one. All throughout the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings were anointed, but there's one that was called the anointed one, and that is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. I want you to note, just for a second, I won't have you turn here, I put them up on the screen to hopefully help you, how the Bible talks about the gospel. And just like Paul does here, the rest of the Bible talks about the gospel not primarily as moral truths or things you have to believe, but primarily as about a person. The gospel, in a sense, is about Jesus. So you look at, for instance, the very beginning of one of the gospels, the gospel of Mark. His opening verse is this, the beginning of the gospel of who? Of Jesus Christ. The good proclamation about a person. The gospel is about a person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a writer, his name is Luke. Luke writes two books. He writes the gospel of Luke, and he writes Acts. In fact, it's Luke-Acts. They're kind of together, but we've separated them out to make them easier to see what's going on. He starts one like this, and then he starts the second like this. Luke 1 Three starts like this. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you. Oh, excellent Theophilus. He actually writes both of these to a man named Theophilus. An orderly account of what? Well, Acts chapter 1 describes what that orderly account was all about. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This orderly account was about a person, about Jesus himself. This crucial fact tells us what the gospel is about. The gospel is about a person, about a person who is the Son of God, about a person who is the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited for one. That means, importantly, the gospel is not moral messages. Importantly, that means the gospel is not agreed upon values or lifestyle choices or education and theology alone. The Bible is not simply a personal belief system or some kind of subjective religious experience. The gospel is not a secret vision or some personal experience. The gospel is not ultimately about us. It's about Jesus. And if you miss that, you'll miss the gospel before you even start down the road. Paul says that the gospel is about Jesus Christ. Now to our second important question, and the one we'll spend the most time on, what events does the gospel include? If the gospel is about Jesus, what events does it include? And Paul outlines at least three. And the first one is simply this. He says in verse 3, this is the gospel I preached to you. He says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died. This is the first act of the gospel. The truths about this person, Jesus, the very first event is that he died. Now, this is important, the way he describes this death, because it's not any normal, regular death. He says, first of all, that he died for our sins. And I want to start kind of backwards with our sins, and we'll work to the earlier word for there. He died for our sins. Now, what is sin? Maybe that seems like a basic question. Parents, have you ever tried to explain sin to your children? I'll give you a hint. Sin is not your kids annoying you, although it can seem that way sometimes, right? Those are the things that are the problem, all right? Dad's going to be real angry, I sinned, by which I mean I annoyed him today, all right? That's not sin. So what is sin? Sin is falling short of God's glory, his weightiness. Romans 3 puts it like this, all have sinned and fall short. The word there. It's translating a Greek word that means keeps on falling short of the glory of God, the weightiness of God. This tells us some important things, and if I were to extrapolate this out to the Bible's teaching on sin, this first hints at these realities that sin isn't arbitrary. It's actually a connection to God's glory. In other words, God doesn't just arbitrarily decide lying wrong, truth-telling good. No, these are actually expressions of who God is. So when we sin, we're falling short of God's self-expression, of being the good, the truthful God, the faithful God. Sin also isn't impersonal. Notice that Romans 3 says you've fallen short of the glory of someone. Sin in the Bible is not merely breaking a law code. No, sin is against a person, and it always has been. I remember in high school, we, I told this story, I think, before to the teenagers. We, I was part of a soccer team that took ourselves far too seriously. And I remember one day we had a spirit week at our school, and our coach especially took himself seriously. We showed up that day at practice ready to do our normal two-mile run, excited for the day, and we show up, and he was not happy. You could just see him pacing back and forth. He had a face that would turn red when he got angry, and we all thought, oh, no, somebody did something. Well, it turns out during Spirit Week, we had loaned our uniforms to the cheerleaders because it was Spirit Week after all. Now, this man came from a military background, and you can only imagine what he thought about our uniforms. 
they should not be touched by anybody who wasn't on that team. So he dragged us out and made us run laps and do up-downs till we were all sick to our stomach. None of us in that moment thought that we broke his heart or hurt somebody. What we thought is we broke a rule, an unknown rule to us. But that's mostly how we think about sin, isn't it? There's a rule, I crossed the rule, I shouldn't have done that, my bad. But that's actually not the way the Bible talks about sin. The Bible talks about sin as against a person, always. In fact, if you look earlier on in the Bible, you look at a book like Genesis, chapter 20. Sarah and Abraham are traveling, and God stops Abimelech, this king, from actually taking Sarah as his wife. And the way God describes this tells us exactly what God expected he would have done if God hadn't stopped him. He says in Genesis 20, verse 6, Yes, I know that you have done this. You have not gone after Sarah in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning against, what do you think the next word is? Me. God says, even though you were about to sin against Sarah, let me tell you how I interpret sin. Sin is always primarily against me. Or like King David. King David, who went and took another man's wife, killed her husband, and here's how he describes his sin. In Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, God, you only have I sinned. In other words, when he looks at all of his sin, the thing that he says, here's really the core problem with my sin, it's that I sinned against a person. Now, who did he sin against? Bathsheba, her husband. When he describes that sin, when he summarizes it, he describes it as this, sinning against God. Like the Apostle Paul himself, when Jesus interacts with him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he says this, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Bible's answer to sin is that it demands a punishment. And the reason is because sin is personal. Sin is, isn't arbitrary, it's not impersonal, and finally, it isn't without consequence. The Bible proclaims a penalty, not mere rehabilitation. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The correct justice always takes into consideration two possibilities when we sin. Even today, we recognize this intuitively. It's the severity of the sin committed and the, the importance of the ones sinned against. It's those two things together that tell us what's just. In other words, I could say it like this. Let's say that I was holding a pen in my hand. And I had a, maybe Robbie Ganino came up here and grabbed it out of my hand and stole it and ran out of the church. Is that a problem? Sure. We've got those two things, though. It's severity of the sin. He stole a pen. Not a big deal, right? The person sinned against. I'm not that important. Let's say instead, though, I get pulled over, I'm standing on, on the side of the road, and the police officer walks up to me, and he or she asks for my license, and I see that they've got a pen in their hand. And I take that pen out of their hand, and I take off. Is that a problem? Now, it's the same sin, right? But we all understand that the person you sin against matters, right? Let's up it one more time. Let's say I, I go to the next inauguration of the next president, whoever that might be. And he's going to sign some important document. And I break free from the crowd in a chariots of fire kind of way and slowly jump and just grab a pen and then stand there. Is that going to be a problem? It's the same sin. But we all know that the person you sin against matters, right? Justice has to take both of those things into consideration. The Bible declares that when we sin, we always chiefly sin against God. No matter how much we harm other people, which is most of what we care about in our sin, 
God cares most about the vertical harm we've done. Now, what about the smallest sin you can imagine but against God? And you can see why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's actually what sin is that forces Jesus to the cross, as it were. It's the severity of the sin committed and the importance of the one sinned against. And the Bible declares every sin is chiefly against God. So Jesus died for the penalty of our sins. But the word we skipped over just briefly, there's also a substitutionary element. He died for our sins. Lots of people were proclaimed that Jesus died as a good example. Look at what Jesus did for his followers. He was willing to die for them as just an example, but that's not the way the Bible uses this term. The Bible is insistent on this fact. He died in our place. We deserved that. He died in our place for our sins. Isaiah 53 famously puts it this way, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was, bruised for, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one. We're all sinners to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The Bible declares that there's two things that have to be true for you to be right with God. Number one, you have to have God-sized righteousness to be right with God. And number two, you can't have any debt with God. The problem is all of us, our whole lives long, have incurred debt after debt after debt because each individual sin is against that God. And each individual sin deserves eternal death. So it's not just that we're neutral with God and we need to earn positive God-sized righteousness. It's that you and I have a God-sized debt, which is why we need somebody like Jesus, like Mark said, the Son of God himself, the divine God himself to die for us. And you might say, well, what if I just try to do my best? My friend, do you have eternal God-sized righteousness in your actions? The Bible says that we need someone to pay our God-sized debt. That someone is Jesus. And the Bible says that we need God-sized righteousness. And only Jesus can provide that. Jesus died not primarily then as an example, but substitutionarily for us in our place. And he offers us his full, unending, God-sized righteousness. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second event, and we'll be briefer here since Paul is himself, was that Christ was buried. Mark recounts it like this, When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish class, who was himself also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. This burial of Jesus was not done privately. Paul himself later on in the book of Acts says this to King Agrippa, I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped your notice, for this has not been done in a corner, and it had not. A, Jew, a Roman guard had been set outside the 
the burial place for three days. Like John 11 describes us, this kind of three-day waiting period in the Jewish time, he was certainly dead. John 11, I think, in the King James says, don't remove that stone because he stinketh, all right? And that's what would have happened for Jesus. They knew he was dead, dead, three days. The final event of the gospel is that he was raised again on the third day. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that this declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Now, this was attested to by individuals, and I want you to see how Paul describes this. He says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, verse 4, in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve, those are the twelve disciples. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. We'll skip over that for the time being. Finally, verse 7, he appeared to James, that's his brother, who did not believe in Jesus. Verse, seven, uh, verse 8 continues, uh, last of all, he also appeared to me. Here, Paul is describing the public nature of Jesus' resurrection after the public nature of his death and burial. And all of this, importantly, thing after thing, event after event, all three are in accordance with the Scriptures. This was an anticipated, planned for, declared event, publicly done so, not hidden in a corner. This was not some private experience, not some hidden secret vision, but on display for all to see this good news of Jesus Christ. I was hiking with a friend not too long ago, several years ago here in the area. This friend had grown up very religious and had heard a lot of the the Bible story and had kind of mixed it with his own ideas like many of us can tend to do. And he said, you know, I've decided I don't really believe what the Bible says anymore. So I asked him a question. I said, well, what do you do with the central claim of the Bible? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, the central core claim of the Bible is that a man named Jesus claimed to be God, died, was buried, and physically rose again. I said, have you ever really investigated that? Have you ever spent time meditating on that? How else do you explain the events of that day? And he said, well... I like to like, kind of let science guide me. I said, okay, well, have you investigated it then? Well, no, not really. This is what so many of us do with the resurrection. It's kind of an afterthought or something you might tack on at the end, but that's not the way the Bible talks about the resurrection. In fact, Paul will go on in just a few verses here. If you look down with me at verse 12, he says this, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? Verse 14, he's going to say, here's what would be true if Jesus didn't rise again. In other words, what Paul's about to do is the one thing you shouldn't do if you're trying to convince people of something you're not sure of. He says, let me tell you how to destroy it. Let me show you the linchpin. If you can pull this out, Paul says, the whole thing's going to crumble. So listen to Paul. Look what he says. Here's how you can destroy Christianity. If you're saying, I want to disbelieve it, here's how you do it. Verse 14, if Christ had not been raised... Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and we are misrepresenting God, verse 15, because we testified that he raised Christ from the dead when he didn't. Verse 16, if the dead aren't raised, then Christ isn't raised. He's talking there about Christians who have died being raised again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who've already died, they've perished. They'll never come back. They'll never rise again. Verse 19, if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, as Pastor Dom referenced earlier, we are of all people most 
to be pitied. Paul says, here's the linchpin. You pull this out, the whole thing crumbles. This is the central fact of the Bible, the central proclamation of the Bible. Like my friends, so many of us have perhaps looked at the, the Bible's moral teachings but never really examined this central thing. The apostle himself says is the core linchpin to the entire story of the Bible. Now, there are three facts that everyone, including secular historians, agree to about this event. There was a man named Jesus who actually lived and actually died. It's publicly attested to outside of the scriptures that he was buried and that his disciples believed he rose again. The Bible obviously takes it one step further that he actually did. But what do you do even with those three facts? Let me encourage you, if you are on the outside of the Bible story and you're wanting to know, is this true or not? Take some advice from the Apostle Paul and start here. Because if this is true, the whole thing's true. And if it's not, the whole thing's a lie. No matter how genuine I believe it, no matter how sincere I might be in my heart, this reality is either true or it's not. It's either true for all or true for no one. It means nothing if it wasn't true and bodily as it's described in the Bible. We could say it like this, this the resurrection is this kind of self-interpreting fact. If it's true, then Jesus really is the Son of God. And if it's not true, we're all liars or at best sincere fools. How can you explain the facts of the women being the first to testify in spite of the fact that that would have not been the way to sell the story? Or the fact that we have disciples who ran the night he was killed and then were martyred for him. How do you explain the, the people like James, his own brother, who did not believe in him and yet died for him, was martyred for him? Paul himself reflects on that at the end of the text we read. Or the Roman soldiers themselves. How do you explain the facts of the resurrection in a way that doesn't require more faith than believing exactly the way God speaks in the Bible? There's some truths that are self-interpreting. Kids, I want you to think for a moment if I made an outrageous claim. How many of you have ever heard of the FBI? All right, kids, any of you ever heard of the FBI? The serious, oh yeah, okay, yeah, we've got some kids who know about that, all right? I want you to imagine this for a moment. Let's say that I, was, I pulled out some sunglasses, which I definitely should have brought for this. I placed them on and I said, nobody tell anyone, but I'm actually the director of the FBI. It's a secret. Now, would you believe me? That would be probably even more fanciful than a resurrection, right? So I would have to prove it in some way, right? I don't want you to take my word for it. I'll show you. And you know what? Jesus doesn't want us to take his word for it either. He lays the facts bare and no uncertain detail. How might I show you that? Let's say I were to pull out an ID card, and on it it said, Chris Pennington, the real FBI director. How many of you would believe that? Now, why would you not believe that? Because that's something that could be falsified, right? So let's say I know what I'll do. I will show you a signed piece of paper by the president. And you say, oh, I've heard about this chat GPT stuff. I know what that is. That's AI, all right? You just have artificial intelligence draft up something. That's what you're doing. No, no, no. I say, I know what will convince you. And I take you with me, and we fly to Langley. We get out of the plane, and we walk up to the front of, this, of the FBI. Sorry, that's CIA. Well, you know, it's the same thing, all right? <laughs> I walk up to the FBI, and, I, and we open the doors. And the person at the front desk says, real Mr. FBI director. 
And I just give them a little nod. And you say, okay, but they could still be in on the joke, right? Maybe they're like your cousin, and this is just a huge elaborate joke. And then I say, well, I got to go to this uh, back room elevator. And they take me in the back, and there's a button on there that says only the real FBI director should touch this. And <laughs> push that. The door opens. I walk in, and I go all the way down to the lower levels. And I walk right past the desk of the real FBI director, and I say, hey, uh, I got some stuff for you to do after this. And he says, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> At what point in this journey are you going to realize, you know what, for him to make this all up as some elaborate scheme takes more faith than to believe what seemed unbelievable. And I take you down, and on my desk, there's simply a placard that reads, Chris Pennington, the real FBI director. At that point, you have to believe it, don't you? Because it's a self-interpreting fact. It would take more belief, in other words, to believe that it was all some elaborate hoax, that the government spent all this money, although they do maybe waste a lot, on this joke for you to see than it would for you just to believe. You know what? It's easier to believe what he told me. What you'll find if you investigate the resurrection is that what seems impossible, the closer you look at it, has no other explanation, which is why Paul says this, this is the self-interpreting fact. If he's the real thing, if he really rose again, the whole thing's true. And if he didn't, it's all a lie. It's not half and half. It's got to be 100% or nothing. This is why Easter Sunday is so crucial. Lastly, let's finish with our final question, which, as I promised, will also be brief. Only the middle one was going to take our time. How can this news affect me? Well, Paul, multiple times here, uses the word preached. The first thing you have to do then is to hear the preached news, the declaration of this news. The Christian faith is not primarily declaring morals. It's not primarily declaring education. Because our problem isn't that we're not moral. The problem isn't that we don't have knowledge. The problem is our sin. The Christian faith primarily preaches a person, Christ. So even when this is talked about, like in Romans 10, verse 14, this is what it's talked about. How then will they call on not moral truth, not on more education? How will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody telling them, without somebody proclaiming it to them? You have to first hear this news. Now, this requires an immense amount of humility because in the news itself, in the news itself is my own sentence. Imagine this morning if your wife woke you up and said, Happy Easter, I got you a present. You open this present, you're excited, you've gotten her flowers. You open it and it says, How to stop being a loser husband. <laughs> now, when you see that, don't you have to accept that with a kind of humility? Because in that moment, to take that gift, you have to say, I am this. There's a sense in which the gospel comes to us like that, and it's hard to hear. The gospel doesn't come to us and say, you have some knowledge and you need a little bit more. You have some ordinances, but you need a little extra. The gospel comes to us and it says, you have sinned against the God of the universe your whole life over, and there's nothing you can do about it. So to take the gift, you have to hear that. You have to hear this truth. For many, especially for religious people, this is so hard to hear. Like the rich young ruler in the book of Matthew and Mark, you want to hold up your good deeds and say, but I've done all these good things, God. And the answer comes back, but you're a sinner. And there's nothing you could do to make yourself right with God. 
You have to first hear the news, this preached news. Secondly, you have to accept the news. Paul uses two words in this passage, received and believed. You have to accept it personally. Romans 10, 13, the verse just before the one I read says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It means you believe the facts that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, but he did that, secondly, for you. Not just as some example, but in your place. You have to accept this for yourself. And finally, what's the result of all of this? Well, it's what Paul has already been talking about because he's talking to believers here, to Christians here. It's to live in this news, to stand, he says, to be being saved, to keep holding fast to these truths. So let me speak just for a moment to those of you who are born-again Christians. It's so easy for us to come back to the cross again and again and ask ourselves this, am I really right with God? And when we ask that question, we don't look up and we don't look in, we look inside ourselves and say, have I done enough good things? Can I tell you how wrong that is? That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, it's about him after all, he died, he was buried, and he rose again in your place, your part is only to admit that, a word that the Bible uses repentance for, to turn away from yourself. I have nothing to offer you, God, and to believe solely in Jesus' death for you. And then to live in that, to stand in it, to stand firm in it, to be held fast by Christ. Here's what that feels like. Paul tells us in Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, that means declared righteous, not by what we've done, but by our faith in Christ alone. We have peace. We have peace with God. We stand in peace through not our good deeds, not our ordinances, not actions we've done, but through only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which, there's our word again, we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. No longer earning God's favor, life now is worship. I asked a question at the very beginning of today. Thank you so much for your, your great attention. That is simply this. How can you know you're right with God? I mentioned two answers that are popular today, even amongst religious people. One is you can't, so you just do your best and hope. And the other is that you can kind of, if you do everything you can and hope that God somehow puts it together in the end. But the Bible's answer is fundamentally different. The Bible's answer is this. The gospel, the good news, is not something you do or something you know. The gospel is about a person. Who's the gospel about? It's about Jesus. And it's about something that happened in Jesus' life. He died, he was buried, and he rose again, importantly, for us, for our sins in our place. And all of this was in accordance to God's plan. So how do you make it your own? you're standing here, sitting here today, and you're asking that very question, how can I be right with God? It is simply as simple as what we read a moment ago. To say to God, I recognize maybe for the first time that it's not that I've broken a law code. I've sinned against you. And it may be the smallest sin I can imagine to the largest one that plagues me at night, but every one of those was most importantly against you. And there's nothing I can do in my finite self to earn infinite righteousness, to overcome that infinite sin. I admit it. I accept the gift and with it the condemnation that I deserve. But Jesus died for me. 
And I believe that he paid the price that I deserved and gave me his infinite righteousness, marked chiefly by the resurrection from the dead. That self-attesting fact that proclaimed for all time, I am God. I am who I said I was. The Bible simply calls that faith, rest, trust. So if you today are sitting here and saying, I don't know if I'm right with God, but I hear for the first time what my real problem is and what the only solution is. In your seat, you can even now cry out to God like that. Even now, you can tell God, I'm a sinner, and I recognize I can't do anything to make myself right with you, but Jesus died in my place, and I accept that. I accept with it the condemnation of who I really am, and I accept the forgiveness that he offers. You can't have one without the other. If you are instead a Christian here, and there are only those two groups of people, those who have already repented of their sin and believed in Christ, and those who haven't. So if you are a Christian, if you've already repented of your sin and believed only in Christ's death for you, today, Paul's message to you is to stand in that, to hold fast to it, to have joy in the peace you have with God. For the gospel was never about you. It was always about Christ. And he today has marked this day of all days, the first day of the week, by his own resurrection for you. Let's pray and ask for God's help to accept this text today. And then as we end, I'll have a few announcements for us. God, what a joy it is to hear of the gospel, the good news. It's not the good news about us or what we can do or what ordinance we can follow or how good we can be or if we can be good enough. The good news isn't about us ultimately. It's about Jesus. And it's about what he did. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. To accept that takes a tremendous amount of humility, especially the better of a person we are. I pray especially if there's anyone here who has their whole life long tried to be a good person and tried to earn your favor, that they would recognize the folly of that. Instead of digging their heels in, would submit to your declaration about them. Because with that submission comes fountains of mercy. We today on this day, on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate not a dead Savior who lived a life as an example only. We celebrate an alive Savior who lived and died substitutionarily in our place. So I pray for all those, your people, who have repented of their sins and believed only in Jesus, adding none of their own good works, that today they would rest and the peace they have before you, because Christ's work is done. I pray then that you would help us, like the Apostle Paul even declares here, to then respond to that grace with obedience, and in the end, that it would all be, as he says, for the glory of God. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ.